This morning, we're going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 19, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 44, and really just wrestling with the thought of how is peace found? Because this is something that I, obviously I think all of us have thought about to one degree or another during the course of our life. It's actually something that people throughout this world wrestle with and have all sorts of ideas and all sorts of solutions that they think will work. But when you look at Luke chapter 19, particularly when you read verses 28 through 44, you can see what Jesus explained when it comes to this idea of finding peace. And to give you some context, this portion of Scripture took place on that day that we typically refer to as Palm Sunday. It's the, the portion of Scripture that describes the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, I'm going to read the Scripture, and then I'm going to come back to it multiple times and visit it. And this is what it says, starting with verse 28 of Luke 19, it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this portion of your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together. Lord, we're just so grateful for the fact that that here on this Sunday, as we think about the triumphal entry of your Son, Jesus Christ, into the city of Jerusalem, we pray, Lord, that uh, we have the privilege to think about this today and rejoice over what he was indicating and demonstrating in his, in his journey into Jerusalem. Father, we know that your Son is our King, our Lord, our Messiah, and he was offering himself to the people that day and and some praised him and some rejected him. But Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture, that we would understand the words that your son communicated. We pray, Father, that you would help us to, to grow in our walk with you as a result, and that we would likewise understand 
what your son was trying to communicate, that in him, this is where we find peace. And we're grateful again to be able to, to start off our day and start off our week looking at these reminders from your word. So we commit this time to you now, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start off this morning with just throwing a few questions out there, and I'd just love for you to just ponder them in your mind for just a second. Really, three questions I'm going to just throw out to, to our group today, and that's this. Question number one is, when you're stressed, upset, or anxious, how do you deal with those emotions? Typically, like what's your pattern? When you're stressed, upset, or anxious, how do you typically deal with those emotions? So just think about that for a moment. Second question is this. When your mind is filled with worries, what do you try to think about instead? If you're trying to get your mind off your worries, what do you try and replace those thoughts with? What do you try and think about instead? Then the third question is this. What do you daydream about? So just let those questions float around for a second in your mind because I bring them up because I think that our answers to those questions, you could answer any one of them individually or collectively if you take all three of them. But I think when we answer those questions, they actually help us identify what we think will actually bring us a sense of peace. You can identify what your heart tends to lean on or go toward when you're trying to find some sense of peace. Now, I think we'd all agree that this world is looking for peace. Ever since humanity separated our, our, our fellowship with our Creator, ever since we severed our fellowship with the Lord, we've been attempting to find the peace that, that we long for through created things instead of through the Creator. There's an irony to it, but it's been the history of humanity ever since that time. That's been the struggle of the human race ever since the day when Adam and, and, and Eve rebelled against the Lord. And that struggle, when you look at the portion of Scripture that we just looked at from Luke chapter 19, that was a struggle that I think was very highly visible on the day of Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Because as he entered into the city that day, he was surrounded by all kinds of people. So there's all kinds of people looking upon what's happening here. They're seeing what he's doing. They're observing uh, the actions that he's taken. And, and there's people with different motives that were in that crowd. You have some people that genuinely trusted in Jesus. And as they praised his name, they were doing so from hearts of faith. They genuinely trusted in him and they praised him. Others, as he's moving into into Jerusalem, coming into the city, they were looking to him to be the means by which they could acquire the things of this world that they actually trusted in. So there are some people that, that wanted him to be king because they assumed that with that, he would then supply the worldly things that they wanted because those were the things that they actually trusted. And then there were others in that group, and we see it from the scripture, that just openly despised Jesus and they rejected him. And I think it's useful when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, and I possibly, I think I sometimes, I, I think I say this almost every Palm Sunday, but I think it's very useful to look at that crowd and recognize that we fall into one of those three categories, where we genuinely trust in Jesus and we seek to give him earnest praise, or we look to him because we hope that he'll give us earthly things that we think will give us some sense of peace, or we just straight up reject him. We're somewhere in that crowd, just like that crowd of people was diverse and filled with different people with different perspectives. Those of us gathered here today fit in one of those categories. 
But I think that regardless of whichever category we fit in, I think we're all probably saying to ourselves from time to time, even when you go back to those initial questions that I asked, how do I actually find peace? We all wrestle with that. Regardless of our background, regardless of your present spiritual persuasion, we all wrestle with that. Well, there's a few things that I think are illustrated in this scripture, and I'm going to revisit some of the things that we just looked at. But one of the things that I think is useful for us to do is to start viewing everything that, that we've been entrusted to oversee and to care for, whatever it may be, as actually belonging to Jesus. And I want to kind of set this up and build this up this way. Again, let me reread verses 28 through 34. It says this, And when he had said these things, so he's talking to the disciples, and he says, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, and just imagine, by the way, if you were the, you know, one of these disciples being sent on this task, all right? And by the way, have you ever had a moment in your life where your parents told you to do something that you didn't understand and you found yourself marching toward doing it and you said to yourself, I don't know why I'm doing this. Why am I doing this? Like, what is the point of this? This is going to be weird. And they weren't given the total story. They weren't given all the details. They were just told, do this. And to do it was actually a step of faith that these disciples are taking, because Jesus says, I want you to go and do, essentially, what's going to sound like a very weird thing. All right? So even before I reread this, this section here, just imagine going, you could pick any house you want in town here, go up to that house, and if they've got a bicycle outside, just look at it and be like, hmm, yeah, I think I will take that. And see how that goes. Or better yet, take their car, right? Take their car. See how that goes for you. This portion of Scripture tells us that he sent two of the disciples, and when you get to verse 30, he says, he said, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied. So why is a colt tied? So it doesn't get away right? So it's not going anywhere. If they didn't care where it went, they wouldn't have bothered tying it. You're going to find it tied, he says, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. Now imagine being the person saying it and imagine being the person hearing it. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, and you can't hear their voice inflection, but can you imagine what it might be? How do you think they said it? I don't know, but I can guess. Why are you untying the colt? Kind of like, hey, uh, what are you doing? You showed up on my ring doorbell, and uh, I had to come out here and see with my own eyes. Why are you untying the colt? And they said... The Lord has need of it. Now, some of the most influential people in my life fall into categories that I, I, don't, I would not have necessarily expected, and uh, you wouldn't expect either. But I have to tell you, years ago, I had the privilege to meet two elderly sisters who had never married. They'd never had children. They were both retired. They were in better health than most of their peers. And because they had a decent amount of available time, they volunteered to serve in many capacities in the local church. They would dedicate a lot of their time to serving in the local church, and they would also take a lot of their time to be a blessing to other people in their age group. And I remember it seemed like they would spend a large percentage of their time during the day taking other elderly people to doctor's appointments, 
or to the grocery store. They would do that. Doctor's appointments and grocery store. Now, there are two people that I didn't know were going to be here that are sitting in the back over here that I just saw you looking at each other, and yes, it is who you think I'm talking about. I'll just say their names, just Shirley and Elmira, right? Um, they wouldn't mind, right? If you could use names if you're saying good things about people from a pulpit, right? Um, but they would take all their time, they would take so much of their time doing this. I remember, by the way, when my own grandmother was in her final years, they would frequently volunteer to take her to doctor's appointments and to the grocery store. I would see them do that all the time. It was, it was amazing. They had a reliable car that they believed that the Lord had blessed them with. And so they said, we're going to use this car to bless others for Christ's glory. And that's literally what they would do. They would take their, their peer group place to place. They said, this car doesn't belong to us. This car belongs to the Lord. And so we're going to use it for God's glory. And I bring that up because when you look at a portion of Scripture like we just read together, I think it illustrates a principle that we would do well to examine. I think in this world, there are many things that are going to be entrusted to you and many things that are going to be entrusted to me. And, um, you know, we may be blessed with knowledge. So if you're blessed with knowledge, that's a wonderful thing. You might be blessed with time at certain seasons of your life. In certain seasons of your life, you might feel like that's the one thing that's lacking, right? Sometimes you have time, sometimes you don't have time. But maybe you have abilities, maybe you have finances, maybe you have specific resources, maybe you have tools, maybe you have a reliable car, whatever it may be. In the context of this scripture, we're told that Jesus sent two of his disciples to acquire him a colt. And they followed his directions, tells us here that they found the colt, they untied it, they told the owners they're taking it because the Lord need, needs it. And from what we see, that answer was apparently sufficient for the owners of that colt, to just hear the Lord needs it. They were like, okay, well, if the Lord needs it, then take it. That answer apparently was sufficient for them. And here you see Jesus, and what he's about to do is he's about to utilize this colt to demonstrate something significant and actually something prophetic about his e eternal identity as king. But he also providentially chose to allow the owners of this cult the unique privilege to partner with him in what he was about to do. Isn't that a cool thought to think, you know what, they thought they were just acquiring an animal when they got that. They had no idea initially that they were actually going to be partnering with the one who spoke, them into, spoke creation into existence and fashioned them. They had no idea that that was ultimately going to be the case, but they follow the Lord's instruction as it comes through the disciples. They could have said no, but they didn't say no. They, they didn't chase the disciples away. They were content to treat what the Lord had entrusted to them as something that belonged to Him anyway. That was their mindset. It doesn't belong to us. And I think that's a helpful example for us, even though we live many generations after this initial event occurred. Because I found it to be a true principle in life that you could either worship the things that you're blessed with, or you could use the things that you're blessed with to worship the one who gave them to you. So we can worship the things the Lord entrusts to us, or we could worship the Lord who entrusted them to us. And I think that if we're selfish with anything that the Lord entrusts to us, time, resources, relationships, anything like that, if we're selfish with those things, I think what we'll end up doing is we'll turn those blessings into harmful idols. Now, I've seen that in my own life, where I've chosen to be selfish in certain areas, and I've had to admit to myself, you know, you're taking a blessing, something that was meant to be a blessing, and you're turning it into an idol. And I think that that's a struggle that, in many respects, I think I, 
I have and all of us have throughout the course of our life to try and identify some of these things. But the other option that we have is to, to just be generous with the blessings that the Lord entrusts to us, to be good stewards of what He entrusts to us, because that's the fruit of genuine faith. And everything that the Lord entrusts to us, it doesn't belong to us anyway, it belongs to Him. And this is something, by the way, that was like a revolutionary concept that the early church embraced that really set them apart from their community. When you look at Acts chapter 4, it's a well-known portion of Scripture that describes what the culture of the early church was like. And it said, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. That special portion of Scripture, I probably bring it up a few times a year because it certainly comes to mind. It's one of those things that you look at and you say, boy, you know, this is something that the Lord has demonstrated to us. He inspires this to be the culture within the early church, and He inspires this to be the culture in the church at present. And here you have the owners of this coal. All they need to hear is that the Lord needs it, and they don't put up this fight. They don't put up a fuss. They don't stop the disciples from taking that colt and, and bringing it to Jesus because they're learning to view everything that's been entrusted to them as actually belonging to the Lord. And when we're, when we're thinking about finding peace in this world, I'll tell you what, we will never find peace through covetousness. We'll never find peace through selfishness. We'll never find peace through idolizing blessings. It's not going to come to us that way. And if you've ever wondered why you're struggling to find peace in this world, I just want to throw a thought out there to you, and again, I'm preaching to my own heart, but I think oftentimes it may be that we're trying to hold on too tight to things that ultimately don't belong to us. And I love this portion of Scripture for illustrating for us what it looks like to not hold tightly to things that don't belong to us anyway. Now, there's something else that I think is illustrating this portion of Scripture that I think I, you know, it would be valuable for us to notice as we think about Christ and His triumphal entry and some of the things that, that were taking place and some of the things that people were saying even during that time. And I think, I think another principle that's illustrated here is this idea that we don't need to let a critical, a critical spirit dampen our enthusiasm for praising Jesus. If you look again at verses 35 through 40, it says, and they brought it to Jesus, so they bring this colt to Jesus, and, and it says, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This portion of Scripture, I think, is amazing on multiple levels, including the fact that it includes the fulfillment of a prophecy that was made by the prophet Zechariah five centuries earlier. When you look at what it tells us in Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
That portion of Scripture in Zechariah, what does it tell us? So it tells us that the king who would offer salvation would come to Jerusalem humbly, and he would ride on the colt, the foal of a donkey. This was a sign that foretold what Jesus was going to do. It was a form of confirmation to those who had eyes to see and ears to hear so that they would recognize the coming of the Messiah. This was something told centuries earlier as an indicator that this is exactly what was going to happen when they're thinking, all right, how is he going to come into into the city? How is he going to emerge? What what are we going to see? Well, when he comes into the city, this is what to expect. You're going to see him riding on the colt, on the foal of a donkey, prophesied through the prophet Zechariah. You have Jesus, he rides that colt into the city. You have the people spreading their cloaks on uh, on the road, it tells us. In Mark chapter 11, verse 8, also tells us something else. It says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And so you have have, these leafy branches also being spread on the road as as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. By the way, that's typically why we, we call it Palm Sunday, although I have to say, I've often wondered why we don't call it Cloak Sunday, because it seemed like one of the major things they were spreading out before him were cloaks. So when we gave this day a nickname, why did we pick palms over cloaks? I don't know. Am I the only one that wonders stuff like this? I may be. Should I just continue? All right, I'll just continue. But I'm letting you know this is the type of stuff I think about. I should probably fill my time with more, (laughs) more useful efforts and more useful questions, but... You know, if you called this cloak Sunday, I would get you, right? But they were both placed before him. By the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to justify this with another portion of Scripture. 2 Kings 9.13, when you have Jehu being recognized as king, what happens? It says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. What are they taking? Cloaks. Come on, it's cloak Sunday. Let's start a trend, see if we can get it to catch on. It's not going to work. Um, but one of the things that I love here, you know, as Jesus rides into the city, you have his disciples, so you have people in the midst of the group here that, that truly do believe in him and truly do trust in him. They call out something specific. The scripture says, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they have, you have them praising Jesus loudly and praising Jesus openly. They were clearly ecstatic about the fact that he was, you know, they're, they're thinking, all right, here he is, he's going to set up his, his earthly kingdom, and he's going to bring Israel even greater prominence than we enjoyed back in the days of King David. And by the way, we've been studying for the, the past couple months the life of David and looking at, at all these different things, and, and keep in mind, you know, centuries later, as, as Christ is coming into Jerusalem and people are looking for the Messiah to be king, what they wanted was a king like David. And the truth is, Jesus came to say, you know what? I'm a better king than David. I made David. And he was offering himself to the people. And you have some people praising Jesus and saying, yes, this is great. But then you also have others, instead of joining the disciples in praising Jesus, we're told that there are people like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, if you're familiar with them, they were the religious elite of the day. And they didn't like what they were seeing at all. They didn't like what they were seeing Jesus demonstrate. They didn't like what the people were saying. And in fact, they sternly instructed Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Like, tell them to pipe down. Tell them to knock it off. Because in their mind, this kind of praise toward Jesus was blasphemous in nature. So as the disciples were saying these things, they're thinking, hey, this is blasphemy. 
They shouldn't be saying this. Look at the praise they're giving you. Tell them to stop. <clears throat> and I love, the, uh, I love the response that Jesus gives them. Jesus, who is Lord over all creation, he replies to these religious leaders in a very wise and honest and direct manner, and he tells them that if the disciples didn't praise him, the very rocks of the ground would cry out in praise. And what he's saying is that even though humanity tries to squelch knowledge of its creator, the creation still testifies to the one who made it. In fact, in Romans 1, it tells us that one of the most obvious signs, one of the most obvious testimonies to the fact that we have an intelligent designer, a creator, is the creation that he's made. Creation calls out. Creation testifies to the one who made it. So if man, being in the image of God, would resist the opportunity here to, to give praise to Jesus, the humble rocks that man thoughtlessly walks over would joyfully accept the privilege in our place. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. He's using some hyperbole here to drive a point home. He's saying, listen, creation will do the praising if, if you won't. If you won't, the very creation will do so. You know, a while back I, I was watching... All right, so I'm just going to confess to you, you already know this about me, most of you. I watch very boring things. I don't watch a whole lot of TV, a little bit, but not a whole lot. Uh, but sometimes when, I'm, when I've got my computer open, I'll pull up YouTube, and there's certain things that I watch on there. I won't go through the long list, but one of the things that I like to watch are certain financial commentators, because I like to plan out my stock portfolio, blah, 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 nobody cares, right? However, I was watching one, uh, uh, not, it wasn't too terribly long ago, and uh, this one particular um, announcer, he was, or like host, really, he was reading through viewer mail. And one of the people that um, had sent in some viewer mail to him said this. This is what they commented. He said, hey, I looked at your profile online, and I have to say, there aren't too many people in tech who believe that Jesus was our Lord and Savior. So it's nice to get some diversification in the tech industry. And I thought that was kind of cool to see. And at that point, I was like, oh, apparently this host believes in Jesus. And I looked online to see what his social profile said. And he was testifying to the fact that Jesus was his Lord and Jesus was his Savior. And I thought, maybe that's why I like listening to his advice. I just thought that was interesting. And I thought, how neat that somebody with that public of a platform would be very intentional about giving praise to Jesus Christ and you know, during the day of Christ's triumphal entry, there were people trying to tamp down that praise. They're saying, just stop it, right? Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Tell them to stop. And by the way, there's still critics in your day and my day who are trying to do the same thing to us. To you. Don't let a critical spirit ever dampen your enthusiasm for giving Jesus praise. I can remember uh, a few years ago, I was telling somebody a story about something that I was super grateful for. This is ironic, Steve, you were, you, you were part of this story that I was telling. I'll fill you in later. And uh, I was telling somebody a story of something that happened to you and me and uh, when we were teenagers that was a confirmation to me that the Lord was just watching over my life and and was just, uh, you know, just being a blessing to me. And I, I remember, uh, I, you know, as I shared that, like I was sharing it with enthusiasm, and this was the response I got from the person I was telling this story to. Eyes rolled. It's like, great, 
here, you know, here, here John goes again talking about Jesus, like over and over again. Pick a new subject. I have a couple other things I like talking about. I just like talking about him the most. And, uh, but I remember looking at that, I was like, oh, and for a moment, you feel that awkward twinge of, oh, so you, you think this is all dumb. And, uh, and then the other side of my instinct was just like a feeling of compassion because here I was in- interacting with somebody that's missing the whole point of life. And in their sarcasm and in their judgmental spirit would look at somebody testifying to the joy they have in Christ and try and squash it or try and stain it or try and, try and dampen it in some capacity. There will always be people in your day-to-day life who try to do things like that, and I just want to encourage you, when you interact with people that do that, or if you encounter somebody that does that, think back to what was taking place here on the the day of the triumphal entry. You have the Pharisees saying, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Tell them to pipe down. Tell them to shut up. And Jesus said, I will not do that. And in fact, if they didn't say something... These very rocks would cry out in their place. And I love his response. One other thing that I think is shown to us in this portion of Scripture that's hopefully encouraging, I think Jesus wants to show us that, that what he's offering may not be what we were looking for, but it's exactly what we need. And if you look at verse 41, down to verse 44, it says this. He says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, there's another portion of Scripture that takes place right in this time period where you see Jesus brought to emotion and he weeps as well when Lazarus passes away, right? And it's got to be interesting to be the one whose fashion creation and created humanity, and to look at people just wandering around lost, not knowing what they're doing, and then to offer them the solution and watch them reject it. And the fact that you and I have emotions, by the way, isn't something that's a defect in our design. Keep in mind, you and I are designed to reflect the image of our Creator, including emotion. And here it tells us that Jesus wept. He wept. Sometimes I think we think that God is emotionless, and that's not, that's not an accurate understanding of how God presents himself in Scripture. Here it says he wept over it. So he sees the city and he weeps over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and Tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's what Jesus says here. Tell you what, every single one of us has things that we're passionate about in life. I've got things that I'm passionate about. You've got things that you're passionate about. Some of these things that we're passionate about, you know, we would look at and we'd say, all right, maybe to the rest of the world, this doesn't really matter, but I guess to me it does. A few years ago, I was thinking about this last night when the storms came through and they were pretty violent, and I thought, what's it going to look like out there after all the storms, you know, come through? I remember when Hurricane Sandy came through, it ripped my fence apart all around my house, and I had to replace the fence. 
And uh, I hired a, a local business to uh, replace all my fencing. And I was talking to the owner of that business, and he was telling me the different opportunities that he had in life, but he said, you know, somewhere along the way, I actually discovered that I have a passion for building fences. He said, I don't know why I like it so much, but I do. So I've had opportunities to do other things, but I said, you know what? I kind of like doing this, so I'm going to just start a fence business. And I'm going to build fences, and I'm going to market fences, and he's made a very successful uh, career out of, of doing that. So he followed his passion. And uh, I look at that, and I think, all right, well, we all get passionate about a variety of things. You know, I get passionate about things. You get passionate about things. We all get passionate and excited about things. But, you know, in this world, there are certain things that we can get passionate about that, that can sometimes result in us losing sight of actually what's of greatest importance. And I think we can somehow, and somehow meaning very easily, develop a form of tunnel vision that misses what Christ has been showing us because it really isn't what we wanted to see. We're consumed with the things we care about. We're consumed with our passions. We're consumed with the things that, that interest us in this world. And so here you have Jesus riding in Jerusalem, and he's looking over the city, and he's observing the people, the buildings, the activity taking place there. And the, again, the Scripture tells us he wept as he's looking at this because his heart's grieved as he watched the very people he had created, spending all their time and all their energy focused on the wrong things and seeking to find peace in this world through their ambitions and through created things instead of realizing that he alone could give them what their hearts were thirsting for. In fact, I love what Jesus says in John chapter 4 when he talks about this. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What's Christ saying? You know, early in the gospel of John, he makes the illustration or the, the, the explanation that ultimately he knows that our souls are thirsty and desiring to be filled. And he's saying, listen, I'll fill your soul. I'll fill your heart. I'll fill your life with something that will satisfy that thirst forever. Well, as Jesus was looking at the people of Jerusalem, he's realizing their lives are being invested in things with no eternal value. And he says, here's what happens with things of no eternal value. You invest yourself completely in things of no eternal value, understand this. Eventually, those very things are going to be taken from you. It's going to be taken from you, right? And, he, and Jesus mentioned something prophetically that, that took place just a few decades afterward. He said that their enemies would one day surround the city and tear them to the ground and not leave one stone resting upon another because they did not recognize the time of Christ's visitation to them. They rejected Christ as their king because they really only wanted a political savior. They really only wanted the best of this world. And less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words in the year A.D. 70, the Romans besieged and destroyed both Jerusalem and the temple just as Jesus prophesied in Luke 19. Now, here's the thing. Christ knows that, naturally speaking, you and I are not looking for Him. We were not reaching out to Him, nor were the people at the time that this Scripture was being uh, lived out. We weren't seeking Him. They weren't seeking Him. So what did He do? He came seeking us. And He's still seeking us, and He's still trying to show us things that we were not inclined to value. But here's the thing, and this is what Jesus wanted them to know, and he wants us to know it as well. Christ offers us true peace. 
Not temporary or circumstantial peace like this world gives, but lasting peace through a relationship with Him. Here's something else Christ offers us. Christ offers us a real future. Not a future that's built on the the flighty ambitions of worldly priorities, but a future in His kingdom that He has secured for us. Christ also offers us life. We were dead in our sin. We were stained with our own unrighteousness. We had no standing before our Creator, and we were condemned to experience an eternity apart from Him. But then Jesus came to this earth and took our sin upon Himself at the cross. He defeated death when He rose from the grave, and now He offers us new life through faith in Him. We're cleansed of our sin. We're made brand new, just a brand new creation through Jesus Christ, and we're now destined to live forever with Him if we trust Him. And so when you look at this sort of Scripture... And you look at the things that Jesus was observing among the people, and you think about the things that we wrestle with here in our day as well, we're still wrestling with this thought of finding peace. We still wrestle with it. And even for us as believers, sometimes we can get off track a little bit and think that maybe perfect circumstances or certain resources or just something in our life, perfect location, perfect timing, perfect events, all that lining up, that somehow that's what's going to bring us peace. But here's the thing, if we would like to know what would really bring us peace, we find the answer in Jesus Christ. Jesus makes it clear in this passage and elsewhere that the answer to the question of what will bring us peace without a doubt is Him and Him alone. That's where peace is found. So don't offer the affections of your heart to anything less than the one who created you. Trust in Christ. Walk with Christ. Find the peace that your heart truly needs. Welcome that peace as He offers Himself to you and to me. We trust in Him, and we're able to genuinely and sincerely give Him praise from from a heart that's filled with faith and from lips that reflect a life that genuinely trusts Him. That's where we'll find peace. It's not going to come to us in any other way. Christ wept over the city of Jerusalem on the day of that, that Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry, the day of the triumphal entry, because they totally missed it. He was right there. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, You know, if God had just show up in person, if we could just see him, then we'd believe. Then we'd believe. Well, he did that. And what did the people do? Some believed, but most did not. And that's the very same dilemma that we find ourselves in culturally right now. Some believe and most do not. Don't be counted among the most who do not. Be counted among those who do. Trust in Jesus Christ and you'll find the peace that your heart truly craves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word and to think about the things that you revealed on the day of your triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We thank you for the prophecies that you fulfilled. We thank you for the fact that you were demonstrating the fact that you are king of a kingdom that far surpasses any typical earthly kingdom. Lord, we know that it's very easy for us to get caught up in our preferences and caught up in the things of this world that we think are so fantastic, and we think that they're going to satisfy our deepest longings. And we've all found ourselves going in that direction, and then we look at a portion of Scripture like this and we realize we can get busy doing all sorts of things, but oftentimes it could be a a diversion instead of something that highlights the focus, and that focus is to be you. 
So Lord, I pray that in our areas of service that you would be the one we glorify. I pray that in the things that excite us and the things that we feel passionate about, that we would tie those things to our opportunity to give you praise for them. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't try to satisfy the deepest longing of our hearts with things of this world that have no eternal value. Father, we pray that we would recognize that it's only through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we will find the peace that we seek. And Lord, we know that the people of Jerusalem did not receive or recognize their Messiah as he came and visited them that day. But Father, we know that your Son is visiting us right now. We pray that we would recognize him. We pray that we would see him. We pray that our hearts would understand our need for him and that we would welcome the peace that he alone can supply. Thank you, Father, for the work that you accomplished on our behalf through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your guidance. And thank you for seeking those who did not seek you first. We love you, Lord. And we're just so grateful for these reminders today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.